Uh, Acts chapter 19, it's um, probably about uh, three quarters of the way through the Bible. You'll find the book of Acts in the New Testament. And uh, chapter 19 is um, obviously 19, and uh, we're starting at verse 1. And I want to read that, uh, and then we're going to uh, spend a couple minutes in prayer, or uh, pray, and then we'll uh, just uh, see what um, we can pull out of this for our help and what God may be speaking to us tonight. Acts chapter 19, starting at verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, Well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them and the Holy Spirit came on them, they began to speak in tongues and prophesy. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Father, thank you for this time now to uh, gather around your word, and we have certainly been singing your word, and we have heard your word as it's explained the role of leadership in the church. And now we come to an opportunity to spend some time reflecting on um, the way that your church began to grow and, and transform even a place like Asia back in the first century. It's the same word that's at work today. And um, Lord, as we think about our own city and pray for our city, pray for the city of Parksville and the city of Qualicum and Arrington and Coombs and Nanaimo, we do know that you are the God of the city. We know that you are the Lord of these cities. And we know, Father, that just as you have impacted Ephesus and Thessalonica and Corinth with the gospel, you can impact our communities with the gospel. So maybe something from these texts will help us as we go out from here today, as we go into our workplaces and into our school settings and uh, wherever it might be that um, we would realize that uh, your word is powerful and able to change lives and change communities. I thank you for the living word of God and um, teach us from it, I pray tonight in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, We've got a lot of phrases that we use to describe certain circumstances in our lives. And often there are circumstances that have worked out positively for us. And so we might say, um, you know, I was sure lucky to be there at that time. It's a way of saying that uh, it was fortunate that we were in that certain set of circumstances and it worked out for our good. Um, Sometimes we might put it in a different way. I was talking with a a fellow this week in his office place and um, uh, he had happened to mention me that his wife had um, fallen and broken her shoulder pretty severely and uh, he said, and we were just fortunate that when we went to the hospital, we got the doctor that we did. And then he described the things that happened and the, the care that she was able to receive because of those circumstances. Sometimes we would say, maybe when we were applying for a job, the timing couldn't have been better. I, you know, I, I just had my education and I just filled out my application and this posting came up and the timing couldn't have been better for me. Um, sometimes we just we might say, you know, it's amazing how things all fell into place. And so we have ways of describing situations that work out for our good. Well, the Bible has a word, um, or not actually a word uh, for this, but the Bible describes those sorts of 
um, um, uh, summarizes those things in a doctrine that we have called the doctrine of providence. And so when we read the very first three words of Luke chapter 19, and it happened, that is a little bit of an insight into the doctrine of providence. What do we mean by providence? Because this is a doctrine that is roven through the whole Bible. It's one of the central things that we need to learn and come to understand about God. Well, providence in, in general, and this is sort of my uh, loose attempt to at least begin to make sense of it, is things are not as they seem. Or more um, specifically, things are not only as they seem. In other words, what it's describing is there's a lot more going on than meets the eye. So when a great circumstance works out for our benefit, there's more going on than just the fact that it worked out for us. There's a whole series of events that had to come together at that particular time in that particular way for that to work out well for us. So things are not only as they seem, or things are, uh, are, are not simply as they seem. Uh, the doctrine of providence, as one person has summarized it, is, uh, is this way. It's the continued activity of God. So we're just saying God of wonders beyond all galaxies. It's the God of the Scripture. It's the continued activity of God in preserving and sustaining all things. So let's just stop there for a minute. We believe, and the Bible teaches, that were God for a moment to turn his back and to walk away and look away from creation, it would collapse within itself. That, that God not only has set creation in motion, but he sustains it. In fact, in the book of Colossians, I believe it says that Christ sustains this world by the power of his word. And so the doctrine of providence tells us that God is continually preserving and sustaining all things. A second aspect of it is it says that God is directing and governing all things to their appointed end. So it's telling us that there is a purpose to everything that happens in your life. There's a purpose in everything that happens in my life. That God is directing and governing all things so they bring about his purposes. Now that says a lot about God because that then tells us that God is in control. That tells us that God knows what's happening even if we don't know what's happening. And that is woven again throughout the Bible. God is the one that raises up leaders. God is the one that takes leaders down. God is the one that knows the day of our birth. He knows the day of our death. God is the one who makes the blind and the deaf. God is the one that gives us life. God is the one that gives us sight. All of these things are in the power of God. It's part of this doctrine of providence. There was a day when if you um, came to church and you talked with people, not so long ago, maybe 15 or 20 years ago, that providence would be a, a normal word that people would use in church. And so they would say, you know, it was the providence of God that, that I got this contract. Or they would say, boy, God was, was certainly working out his providence and I met my future spouse. It was just a way that Christians talk. Now, many of you, maybe tonight's the first night you've ever heard that word providence. It's, unless it's, what's that TV show, Providence Island or something like that, um, which is a place, not a characteristic of God. Anyhow, providence, though, it needs to get back into our language. And so this is what uh, Luke is talking about here. He's talking about the way that God is working things out so that Paul came to Ephesus at just the right time. And it happened is a way of saying God was at work. For we see here, if you've been with us for a little bit, that here we have the wisdom and the providence of God at work bringing the gospel to Asia. Because in three years, 
it seems like impossible, but the reality was, and at the end of verse 10 it says this, that all of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That sounds almost impossible. Because we read that, you remember this, um, if you were here maybe four or five weeks ago, that Paul and his little gang was starting to make their way from Antioch into Asia, and they wanted to preach the gospel in Asia. And in Acts chapter 16, verse 6, it, it says that the first attempt that they made, it says the Holy Spirit forbade them from going there. And they go, okay, so they went another hundred miles or so in a different direction. And it said the Spirit of Christ stopped them from going there. And so the only way that they could go was east, and so they came to the coast, and Paul had a vision there. God gave him vision of a Macedonian man calling him and saying, you need to come over to Europe. Paul's whole desire had been to take the gospel to Asia, but now he has this vision to go to Europe. So they talk about it, they pray about it, and off they go to Europe. And the gospel explodes in Europe. And that's what we've been looking at. They go to a, a city called Philippi, and, and just amazing things happen as people respond to Jesus Christ. They go to Thessalonica, the same thing. They go to Corinth, the same thing. So there's this amazing set of circumstances that come about for the good of uh, Europe. But in the back of my head, I was saying, well, what about Asia? Like, what about all those people who could have heard the gospel, but because Paul was sidetracked and taken over to Asia, they've been left out? Well, when Paul finished that journey, the second missionary journey, it says as he was coming back, he stopped in at Ephesus. And when he stopped in at Ephesus, in Acts chapter 18, verse 19, it says that he, went, he left his buddies somewhere and he went to the synagogue. And when he went to the synagogue, he started talking to them about Jesus and about the Messiah and about the Word of God. And they said to him, we really want you to stay. And Paul's response was, I need to go to other things, but if God wills it, I will come back. And there's again that sort of key word. If God wills it, I will come back. Well, now we find him here at Ephesus. And it happened that Apollos was in Corinth. Paul came to Ephesus. That is the providence of God. This is Luke's way of saying, this isn't just man deciding I'm going to go one place or I'm going to go another way. This is Luke's way of saying God is in control. And he's in control in such a way that in the course of the next two to three years, all of Asia... And it's a bit of hyperbole, but it's, it's the way of saying that the gospel touched every corner, every city of Asia. Because that was God's specific timing. And so Luke begins by just telling us, loved ones, that God is a God of providence. And you've probably experienced that sometimes. You know, you've been trying to do something, and you've wanted to go somewhere, or you've wanted to meet someone, or you wanted a particular job, or you wanted to get in a particular school, and you thought it was right, and Claude shut the door, and you're sitting there and thinking, what's going on here? I thought God was helping me. I thought I had the direction all worked out. And that door closed. And you kind of leave it in the back of your minds, and then maybe six months later, or a year later, or two years later, that door opens in a way that just blows your mind. And you realize, well, God knew what was best. His timing was perfect. And so we see this. This is what Luke is saying here when they come to Ephesus. It so happens when he comes to Ephesus that he, it says there in, in, at the end of verse 1 that there he found some disciples. For many of us, when we hear that word disciple, we automatically think Christian. That's the way we use the Bible or the, that word in, in churches today. When we say somebody is a disciple, we think, oh, they must be a Christian. They must be a follower of God. But this is not the case here necessarily. Because when they said they were disciples, 
something clicked in Paul's head, and he says, what are they talking about? Or, or I've I got to clarify this a little bit. And so in the next couple of sentences, he asked them two really critical questions. Questions that kind of get at the heart of who these people were. And the first question he asked them, he says, when you believed, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Paul is there making, um, making a distinction then between disciples in general and disciples specifically of Jesus Christ. And so he says, when you believed, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And their response was, we've never heard of the Holy Spirit. And so that kind of set bells off in Paul's mind. And then the second question he asked them, he says, well, then who were you baptized into? In what name were you baptized into? And they said, well, we were baptized into John the Baptist. And Luke, or Paul says to them, well, no, you need to be baptized into Christ Jesus. See, what was going on in this particular setting was Paul came to a group of individuals and they may or may not have put their faith in God, but they didn't know the full gospel. They hadn't come to understand the importance of who Jesus was and what Jesus had come to do. They were still what we might call, and I think I could go here at least with them, they were Old Testament Christians. They were still looking ahead to the coming of Christ. They hadn't realized yet that Christ had come. And so what I think happens in the next of these verses, and at least it's the way that I've summarized it for myself, is what does it mean then to have faith? Or what, is it, what does our faith mean? And the first thing that Paul begins doing with these individuals is he clarifies faith for them. He clarifies what it means to be a disciple for them. I was um, in, a, in, a, in an office place and ran into uh, somebody who had been at a funeral that we had held at our church about a, a, a week ago, on uh, a midweek. And I don't think this individual is a follower of Christ, but um, they, they had sent me an email. Um, and uh, on the email, it, it said, um, Paul, it was great to be at the funeral um, uh, interesting what you said and the way you said it and, and how you talked about the Bible and how you comforted the people. Um, that is different from what I believe. And they mentioned the, the, the religion that they believe. And they said, I'd like to talk to you about that sometime. And so I sent them an email and we'll get together and talk about it. Because they need some clarification. They need to understand that, that how the Bible talks about being a follower of Jesus Christ is different from what they are following and what they are believing. And so we need to clarify this from time to time. And so when they said they were discipled, what that simply means is they're a learner. They, uh, in Jesus' days, there were disciples of all kinds of people. If you were a good teacher of any kind, you had a whole bunch of disciples. And they would follow you wherever you went. And, and they would listen to every word that you said. And they would try and speak the same things you did and try and understand um, your philosophy. They would dress the way that you did. They would eat the things that you did. And so a lot of people had um, disciples. It's not unlike what we see today. Um, some, some of you that have gone to university for two or three years, um, if you're taking a particular course of study, and there might be four or five different professors in that area, there might be one that you in particular like. And you say, I am going to take every single course by that particular prof. Because I, I think they've got it, and I want to learn from them. That's, that's in, a, in a rough way, being a disciple. And, and so we still have that same kind of thing today. But Paul is saying to these individuals now, it's really important about your faith. And we need to get to the bottom of this. So he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? What he's saying there is, this is a salvation issue. He's asking them, have you been transformed inside? 
Because it's the Holy Spirit that does a couple of things. The Holy Spirit is the one that gives us new life. It's the Holy Spirit that takes the work that Christ accomplished on the cross in dying for our sins, and He makes it come alive in our hearts and our lives. And not only that, it's the Holy Spirit. When we become a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. And I believe that the Bible teaches very clearly that you cannot be a believer without the Holy Spirit. There is um, some that have looked at this particular phrase and have translated it in a way that, that causes some confusion. And they look at the phrase, and, and rather than how Paul, uh, or how it's written here where Luke says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? They translate it, did you receive the Holy Spirit after you believe? And that subtle difference has caused a lot of difficulty in the church. Because then what some people are believe and, and teach is that you can be a believer, but not have the Spirit. That there are two sort of aspects even of salvation, that you become a believer, and then you need then also to receive the Holy Spirit. I don't think that's at all what is being taught in this particular passage. Paul is just asking about a salvation issue. And there are at least ten Bible passages that we could go to tonight that, that describe um, um, believing and receiving the Holy Spirit as a simultaneous event, that they happen almost at the exact same time, that you can't almost distinguish them in time. And so the Bible, I believe, in the New Testament says it is impossible to be a believer and not have the Holy Spirit. And so that's what Paul is saying to them. He says, listen, the Holy Spirit has been sent. Jesus has gone into heaven and he promised, I won't leave you alone. I will send the Holy Spirit to you and he will come and he will live in you. And so these people hadn't experienced that yet. He said, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. And then the next thing that Paul says to them, he says, well, into what were you baptized? In other words, what, what did you embrace? Who did you embrace? Who became the center of your life? And they said, well, we were baptized into John. And this is where kind of knowing your Bible helps a little bit. But this is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, as we know, was the one who prepared the way for Jesus Christ. He was the one that dressed in this funny clothes and he ate honeys and honey and locusts in the, in the wilderness. And he went about saying, um, uh, Jesus is coming. And he prepared people for the coming of Messiah. And he baptized people in water, but it was a baptism of repentance. It was a baptism that, that helped them see that they were sinners, but it didn't help them resolve the sin issue in their lives. And so John, even John the Baptist said, listen, I baptize you with water, but there's one that's coming after me. He is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. In other words, he's the one that is going to deal with the sin issue in your life. He's the one that's going to affect repentance in you. He is the one that's going to bring transformation to your life. And so it says that immediately when they heard that, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. I think what that means for me is that, and I, I say that carefully because I, I think this is what the Scripture would say that means. Not I think this is what it means for me. I think that what the Scripture is saying there, that Paul took them aside and he says, listen, you've only heard about John. You might have heard about the name of Jesus, but you have no clue what Jesus has come to do. Let me tell you about the person of Jesus. And so I'm sure over the next hours or maybe a few days, Paul sat down with them and he talked to them about Jesus Christ. 
And he told them about the fact that Jesus was God and how God had sent his one and only son into the world and that Jesus had come into the world and he was born and that he lived this amazing, this perfect life. He pleased God in every way. And then, then, then that it was necessary, though, that he suffer and that he die and that, that then he be raised again from the dead as a way of saying that God accepted his sacrifice for our sins. And the only way that then one could have repentance effected in them and the only way that they could have eternal life was to put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. And they embraced that, and they became followers of Christ. So I think that's the first thing that we need to understand is that sometimes it's important to clarify faith with people. Because there are people who believe that you can find another way to heaven. There are those who believe quite strongly that it doesn't matter what you believe about Jesus. It matters that you just have some view of God, and eventually we'll all get there. It's absolutely critical that we believe in Jesus Christ. And that's the next thing that we see in this passage, and I've I've summarized sort of contents of it, is what is the basic contents of faith? What's the substance of what we believe? Jude tells us he wants us to contend earnestly for the faith. Well, what are we contending for? Well, the first thing, and I've already mentioned this, is is in verse 5. It says that Paul explained to them uh, who Jesus Christ was. And so that is one of the central messages of us as followers of Christ, is we need to tell people about Jesus Christ. We need to point them to who Jesus is. We need people to realize that there is no other way whereby which one can have a relationship with God but through Jesus Christ. You know that you cannot bypass Jesus and get to God. You can't get there on your own good works. You can't get there on somebody else's good works. You can't get there by buying your way in. You can't get there because you're a good person. You can't get there because you were born into the right family. You can't get there because you attend church. The only way whereby which one can enter into a relationship with God is through Jesus Christ. And the Bible says very clearly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. When the Philippian jailer asked Paul when he came to the city, and he says, what must I do to be saved? Remember what Paul said? He says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your family. In another place, we had, the, we had when they were cut to the heart, Peter had been preaching, and they were, they were cut to the heart. They understood that they were sinners. And they said, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We need to be very clear on this when we talk to people and can't waver and can't waffle on this. The basic content of the Christian faith narrows itself down to Jesus Christ. What will you do with Jesus Christ? A second thing that we see here is it says that Paul, in verse 8, if you have your Bibles open, it says there that Paul Um, entered into the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. If this was a a class, I would stop right now and I'd say, well, let's talk about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Why is that important? What is it that we are teaching? Because it matters. Because all of the Gospels begin in one way or another stating that Jesus came preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand. You remember when the disciples asked Jesus, teach us how to pray, that what did Jesus begin by saying? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. 
what is the kingdom of God? The book of Acts begins in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, and it says, After Jesus was raised from the dead for 40 days, he went with his disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of God. And then we come to the end of the book of Acts, and the very last verse in the book of Acts, we find it closing with Paul having people around him teaching about the kingdom of God. So, loved ones, that tells me that the kingdom of God is important. What is the kingdom of God? Well, I think one of the ways that you can find out what the kingdom of God is, is read the book of Ephesians. Because the book of Ephesians is a summary of what Paul taught the Ephesians when he was there for over two and a half years. It's the summary of all his teaching about what God has done about God, how God involves himself in the world and in the lives of people, and then how we live in response to what God has done. If you want to know more about what the kingdom of God is, then go and read Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. We call it the Sermon on Mount. And there we see how becoming a Christian and living for God is absolutely countercultural. And so the kingdom of God really is a reminder to us that in this world there are only two kingdoms. We might think that there are more. We might not understand that. But there are two kingdoms. And you are in one kingdom or the other. There is no third option or fourth option. You are either in the kingdom of God or you are in the kingdom of Satan. In other words, God is the one that you listen to and follow and who guides and directs your life. Or Satan is the one who you listen to and follow to and who directs your life. The Bible says that one is a kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan. One is a kingdom of light, the kingdom of God. One is a kingdom of death, the kingdom of Satan. One is a kingdom of life, the kingdom of God. It is absolutely critical that we talk about and teach about and understand what it is for us to live in the kingdom of God as subjects to our king, God. And so that's what Paul taught as he stayed in this city. And, and, and I would encourage you to, to, to think about that and to look more of that up. What does it mean, this word kingdom of God? And the third thing that he taught, so he taught about Jesus Christ, he taught about the kingdom of God. And the third thing that's essential to our faith, and this is a broad topic, but he says for two years uh, he taught so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. I think sometimes we get so sidetracked with talking about great books that have been written and, and about great programs and about great philosophies out there. And we lose track of the central substance of what we are to believe and teach and talk about the word of God. Loved ones, that is how the gospel transformed the world in the first century. And it's the only way that I know when we sang that song, God of the city, the only way that, that God will be God of this city is if we teach about Jesus Christ, if we teach about the kingdom of God, and if we spread the word of God. That's the only way that this city will be transformed. And so it's important that we understand sort of the content of our faith. The, the third thing that I think is really critical for us to understand, and, and I think sometimes we lose sight of this, and I don't know any other way to put it, but it's, it's the verbal necessity of our faith. By that I mean the Christian faith is communicated verbally. It's not communicated through silence. It's not communicated through lifestyle. It's communicated as we speak and as we talk. Faith has to be proclaimed. It needs to be talked about. And, and, and the scripture um, tells us when Jesus was speaking to his disciples, he said, go into all the world and live a good life. No, he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. There's a proclaiming that is part 
of, of, of the word of God. Paul, writing to the Romans, he said, There is no distinction between Jew or Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on everyone who calls on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I believe that with all of my heart. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how does that happen? Paul asks a couple questions. He says, well, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? So how do you call on somebody? How do you ask somebody for help if you don't even know who they are and, you, and you, so you don't know how to believe in them? And the second thing he says, and how are they believe in him if they have never heard? And then he says, and how are they to hear without somebody preaching? And then he says, how beautiful are the feet of them who bring good news. I don't know of anybody here tonight who would say they are a follower of Jesus who came here in any other way other than the fact that somebody told them about Jesus. It might have been in a sermon. It might have been in a conversation. It might have been in a Sunday school class. It might have been in a coffee shop. But somebody told you about Jesus. That's all I... That's really the point that I want to make here, that the way that we communicate the Christian faith is through language, through speech, through verbs and nouns. And that's what we see Paul doing. It says he reasoned in the synagogue. He argued persuasively with them. He discussed and he reasoned daily with them. These all require speech, audible communication. So there's a verbal necessity to our faith. The, the, the next thing that we see, and, and I think this goes in line with it, but it's so important. And it's there's an intellectual reality to our faith. I think sometimes that people look at um, Christians and they think that they've lost their minds. Or sometimes, you know, we, we have a, a saying that used to be uh, sort of thrown around that when you go to church, they expect you to check your brain out at the door. If that was the case, I would run from here in a second. Because I have an inquiry mind and I think all of us have an inquiry mind. And the scripture very clearly tells us that the battle in individuals' hearts, in, in, in lives, is a battle for the mind. In Romans chapter 1, it says that people who have abandoned God and walked away from them have become futile in their thinking. That a fool says in his mind, there is no God. That in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see Christ. I think the battleground is primarily one in our mind. And I think that the Gospel and the Scripture and, 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 and what we talk about is absolutely reasonable, logical, rational. If you and I are rational and we think rationally and we, and, and we were made by God, it goes to reason that God is rational. And so one of the things that we need to have confidence in is that everything that's contained in the Word of God can stand up to any argument, any worldview, anything that's intellectually thrown at us. We ought not to be ashamed to get into a discussion in a workplace or in a school about abortion. We ought not to be ashamed to get into a discussion about euthanasia. We ought not to be ashamed to get into a discussion about how we think this world came into being, whether it evolved into what it is now or whether it was created by God by verbally speaking that word. 
We ought not to be ashamed to get into a discussion about what happens to somebody after they die. We ought not to be ashamed to get into a discussion about somebody about ethics or about morals because the gospel and what it teaches us is incredibly rational. It's thoroughly reasonable. And it can stand against any argument that is thrown against it. So don't be ashamed. Don't be afraid of taking this gospel into your workplace or into your classroom or at your dinner table. Because if it can't stand up to a reasonable, rational, logical argument, then I don't want it either. The gospel is reasonable and rational. The next thing that it um, talks about, and there's two left, and we'll get them really quickly. We've talked about the essential clarity needed in our faith. We're always growing, and so we need to be helped, and we need to grow. Uh, we talked about the broader context of our faith, uh, the fact that it's Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God, and the word of God. We talked about the fact that there's a verbal necessity to our faith. We've got to talk about it. We talked about the fact that we ought not to be afraid or ashamed of the fact that, that um, we might not be able to argue and defend what we believe. Now, though, I want to talk about the dangerous fall away from faith. Because this is also a reasonable assumption. When Paul first came to Ephesus in chapter 18, verse 19, it says that he was initially welcomed into the synagogue. And he went into the synagogue and it said he was reasoning with them. And they said to him, we want you to come back. We like what you're saying. Often, that is the response of people when they first hear the gospel. I like that. That makes sense. I've never heard that before. Yeah, let's, let's talk about that some more. But then it says, as Paul came back, look at what it says in verse 8. It says, he entered into the synagogue again, and he talk, talked for three months, boldly reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But some of them became stubborn. The word stubborn is also a word that means they hardened their hearts. It's a, a Greek word from which we get a, a family of English words from sclerosis. It's a hardening of the arteries. Um, and we know that physically, if you have a hardening of the arteries, it can be a potentially life-threatening condition. Well, what Paul is saying here and what Luke is reminding us is that as some became obstinate, they started hardening their hearts and they started saying, this stuff is bunk. I don't believe it. This doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit my lifestyle. Or it challenges my lifestyle. And they started to harden their hearts towards what Paul was saying. It's the same word that's used a number of times in the Old Testament. And you'd be particularly familiar if you know anything about Pharaoh. And it said that Pharaoh hardened his heart. It's talked ten times in the Exodus. It talks about Pharaoh hardening his heart. Five, God hardens his heart. And five, Pharaoh hardens his heart. It's talked about the people of Israel who come into a difficult situation and rather than trust God and put their faith in God and deal with difficult circumstances, they get angry at God and they harden their hearts towards God. And so we see initially they wanted to hear about the gospel. They liked it. And now something was happening and something was changing and maybe circumstances, maybe what Paul was saying, and they were hardening their hearts. The writer of Hebrews is very clear on this. He says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. A hardening of the heart is something we choose to do. The next thing that Paul says is not only did they harden their heart, but in verse 9 it says, and they continued in unbelief. And so they started saying to themselves, now this is all hogwash. 
that's not the God that I want to believe. That's not how I understand the Old Testament Scriptures. I don't believe that about Jesus Christ. I don't think that He can change my lifestyle. In fact, I don't want my lifestyle changed. And they continued in unbelief. That's the next step in this dangerous fall away from God. They refused to obey. Hebrews 3.12 again says, Take care, brothers. Notice that. Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. It's a real dangerous path. We start out interested. Something happens. Might be circumstances. Might be difficulties. And all of a sudden, our heart begins to harden. And it's also sometimes even imperceptible, just like the hardening of the arteries is imperceptible sometimes until it's too late. Our heart begins to harden. And then all of a sudden, unbelief begins to grow in us. And we begin to doubt whether there is really a God or whether He really cares or whether He's involved in our life or whether it really matters at all. And then the next thing that we read here is it says that they spoke evil of the way. I've seen this happen many times. People start off interested in faith. And then something happens and they become hard toward the gospel and the people of God. And then all of a sudden belief begins to, unbelief begins to grow and flourish in their heart. And then, because they've convinced themselves and fought against it, then they start to speak evil of the way and malign it. And downgrade it and mock and make fun of Christians and make fun of the people of God and say, ah, oh, that's just a bunch of hooey. Don't bother with that. I'm done with that. And they walk away from that. It's a very dangerous path to go down. Because what one needs in order to get back and right with God is repentance. And I think we need to be careful when we muck around with this notion of repentance. And as we walk down this road and we think, well, okay, you know, I'll go down this road for a little while. But, you know, maybe, maybe at some point I'll turn around and, and, and I'll go back to God. You know, maybe, you know, I, I tried the Christian life stuff and, and I tried to live a good life and I tried to do what is right. But you know what? It's not working for me. And so I'm just going to try the other side for a little while and I'm just going to play around with, with sin. And I'm not going to go really deep into sin, but I'm going to just enjoy it just a little bit. And, you know, I'm going to pursue my own things in life. And then when I'm ready, then I'll try it again. But there's a serious flaw in our reasoning if we think that at any point we can just jolly well turn around and repent and go before God. Because the Bible makes it very clear that we do not know our hearts. In fact, we don't even control our own hearts. The Bible says that the heart is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? In other words, there's, there's this world in, inside our heart and our thinking that is so deceptive that it deceives us into thinking that we can run away from God and then at any time choose to come back to God. And it's a dangerous flaw in our thinking to go down that path. Because eventually you come to a story like Esau. And it says there that Esau had sold his birthright. He had sold everything that was important to him spiritually. And then at some point he realized that he had given that up and he wanted it back. The writer to Hebrews said he wanted to, in, to inherit the blessing. But he was rejected because he didn't find an opportunity for repentance. Even though he sought it with tears. You see, repentance is a gift of God. It's a beautiful gift. And it's something that God does as, as He wrestles with a, with a human heart and with an individual that's wrestling and battling with, with sin and with life and with issues. But it's not something that we can play games with. 
And so this is a real dangerous path that Luke has outlined as Paul is in Ephesus here. It's a dangerous thing to start going down this path of hard-heartedness, unbelief, speaking evil of the way, and then thinking at some point, I can turn it all around. And the last point, and I'll say this very quickly, and I didn't know any other way to, to say this, and it, it just doesn't sound right, it, but it communicates what I wanted to say. And it's simply this. It's the sinner's entrance into faith. Um, in other words, how does one who doesn't know Jesus, how is faith birthed inside of them? Well, notice what it says here that um, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Sometimes we forget the fact that God has determined that the way in which anybody, anywhere, anytime, comes to faith in Jesus Christ is through hearing the Word of God. There is that, we looked at Romans chapter 10 and we talked about, you know, how does one hear unless somebody goes and how does one go unless they're sent and, and, and then God sends them and they preach and how beautiful are the feet of them who bring good news and then the summary of that and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. I think this is why missions is so important. Because if we don't go to people who have never heard the gospel, they have no opportunity to have faith born inside of them. If you never tell your brother or your sister, your mother or your father, your uncle or your aunt, your workmate about Jesus Christ, there is no opportunity for faith to be born in them. The only way whereby which we can learn about Christ and faith can be born in us is if we hear the word of the Lord. And so I pray that God will help me to be more bold in talking about the Word of God. And He will help you to be more bold in talking about the Word of God. And as we do, that God uses that to birth faith in an individual. Let's pray.